Hello, everyone, and welcome to GBA's May Trade Policy Podcast. My name is Dana Neff. Today, we are joined by Justin McCarthy of Aiken Gump and Aaron Taylor, GBA's Senior Director of Tax and Trade. Thanks for being here, guys. Good to be with you. Thank you. So today, we're going to take a look at some of the implications of USTR's current relationship with Congress. Earlier this month, a bipartisan group of senators sent a letter to USTR expressing their concern about USTR's failure to adequately consult with lawmakers regarding the Biden administration's trade work. And we've also heard members of Congress raise this concern as well in hearings in the past, and clearly they're not too satisfied right now. Um, so Justin, I'm wondering to start out, could you give us a little bit of an overview on the norms or maybe the processes for which USDR has used in the past when consulting with Congress? You know, how does this typically work? Yeah, so typically, um, let me just sort of give you sort of my my experience in the Bush administration. So I, I worked, uh, I ran the Congressional Affairs Shop for then Ambassador Portman and, uh, and Ambassador Schwab. And, you know, if I had one sort of hard and fast rule um, when I was there was no process files. And no process files, you know, was the mantra for two reasons. One, Ambassador Portman had just, you know, come from the House and very much a uh, institutionalist um, and very much a, a believer in you know, the role, particularly the Ways and Means Committee, where he was a rather senior member uh, on that committee. The other, uh, and Ambassador Schwab, you know, similarly, although at the staff level, sort of cut her, you know, teeth and trade policy on the Senate Finance Committee back in the early 80s for uh, Senator Danforth. So both of them had a, you know, very, you know, were very sort of committed to, you know, the sort of partnership that uh, trade policy requires, given the constitutional allocation of authority uh, between the executive and, and the legislative branches. The second more practical reason why we would not sort of tolerate any process files was that we had a lot of free trade agreements under negotiation that Congress was going to end up voting on. And a number of them were, you know, very controversial, couldn't afford to lose a vote based on, you know, a, a process file. We needed to be able to take, you know, process out of the equation and you know, make make the case for approving free trade agreements based on the policy and the merits uh, of, of each agreement. So there was a both a, a philosophical and a practical uh, reason for for doing so. We we shared probably more than most. We shared you know under classified briefings with you know the big four trade councils. To, you know, share text before we tabled text. We would share text that was tabled by our trading partners, classified under, you know, foreign government information. And so, you know, we were about as open a book with the big four as as we could possibly be. Now, we got some letters that were, you know, sort of similar in tone to the the letter that uh, that the senator sent to Ambassador Tai uh, earlier this month. But those were different in that they were not bipartisan. And they were usually the result of not liking an outcome. Uh, so Mr. Levin, uh, Congressman Levin, when he was ranking member and uh, and even when he was trade chair, despite being fully consulted and fully briefed, if the policy decision sort of went the other way, we would get a, a letter that was, you know, a little bit similar, but it was usually more specific to a, uh, a particular issue that uh, he had a policy difference with, you know, with the administration. Uh, and I think that happened a little bit too during the Obama administration, where uh, Republican members would, uh, you know, lose out on a on a policy issue and, and therefore try to 
you know, blame process and consultation and cite Article 1, Section 8. What's different about this is that this is not about the policy at all as much as it is the, you know, congressional executive partnership. And I think that's what makes it more noteworthy than, than some of the, you know, similar things we've seen in the past. So when do you think the relationship started to break down? Do you think this started during the Trump administration's approach to different trade policies, or is this something procedural that has kind of come from this administration? I, I think it, it is more this administration. There were certainly disagreements over policy uh, with the Trump administration, but I mean, even I think the fiercest opponents of you know the approach uh, on policy that Ambassador Lighthizer took on USMCA, for example, and I'm thinking of Senator Toomey in particular. I don't think I don't recall any real sort of process fouls aside from the negotiation with Speaker Pelosi and House Democrats that he thought was a violation of, of sort of the, the, the TPA uh, procedures. Uh, but that was less about sort of consultation and more about following the procedures laid out in, in, uh, in Trade Promotion Authority. And again, there are I can speculate on sort of lots of reasons why. I mean, one, you know, particular reason that sort of jumps out at me, despite Ambassador Ty's background on the Hill, you know, they haven't had a sort of head of congressional affairs for uh, about, I don't know, uh, six months or so. They have a new person in there, but I, I was sort of baffled by their responses to the questions during the, during the uh, finance committee hearing, which I think was the impetus for this. And I think there's a, you know, there's an old line that if if Tom Carper's mad at you, you you've done something wrong. Uh, and Senator Carper was certainly uh, pretty animated during that you know during that hearing, and I think that's why you saw on both sides, and again, not focused on you know some of these senators disagree on what the appropriate position of the U.S. should be taking on on the trips waiver and WTO, but they are all united in their I guess frustration with the uh, lack of consultation and. And, and briefing uh, uh, from from USDR. Yeah, I think that's the really interesting thing here is the procedure versus policy debate and where people are expressing their distaste. And so speaking of trade promotion authority, I'm wondering, do you think that's going to enter the conversation at all here? You know, that expired. And I'm wondering if anyone's going to be interested in talking about that more now. I I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think in the near term, I don't think so. I, I think it is difficult to and to imagine a, the administration seeking TPA at this point, you know, particularly, you know, with the run up to the midterms and then you're, you know, gearing up for the, the presidential. Um, if you recall in the Obama administration, it wasn't until the second term, Obama's second term, that made the, the real push, you know, for TPA. And, and you know, that was, you know, a, a hard, hard fought battle, but, you know, ultimately succeeded in, in, uh, in 2015. That sort of dynamic, I think, is going to be tough to find politically, you know, between, you know, now now and then. Uh, and we need to see a pretty, you know, major pivot from the White House and from USTR on, uh, on the agenda. One thing I do think, you know, that this process point could be uh, even more important for is if the U.S. and U.K. sort of relaunch those trade talks. Now, there is, I think, uh, conventional wisdom is, is that you could maybe get the US-UK done without TPA. I'm not sure I quite buy that, but that would be where, you know, this level of trust between the committees and USTR will will really be put to the test. 
particularly following, you know, the sort of bad feelings about how it's gone so far on the TRIPS waiver. Hey, uh, Justin, Aaron here. Let me jump in and ask one other question. Somewhat related to something you said at the very beginning, you know, no, pro no process fouls. Um, given the fact that Ambassador Tai has such a deep relationship with members, particularly on the Ways and Means Committee, do you think the feelings of the Ways and Means members are similar to those that are shared by the senators? And if so, are they just not willing, are they communicating them privately and not publicly? Uh, I don't think, I, I, I do think that she is still, she still has a lot of goodwill on the Ways and Means Committee. I think the way this broke down was the way that she answered the questions, particularly at the Finance Committee. Um, I, so I don't know how the Ways and Means uh, Committee feels, you know, more broadly there was, you know, there is obviously a policy divide there, and that was sort of more the focus of the House hearing. But it was the the way in which uh, the Q and A went on this issue that really, I think, is what frustrated uh, the Senate Finance Committee members members the most. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, when we talk about something like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, let's say USDR begins to implement it without congressional approval, or the administration makes a larger kind of push and to implement it. How do you think Congress should respond to a move like that? Is there any room for them to kind of maybe, quote, regain ground here or make their opinions even more known in a response, some kind of response? Yeah, this is, this will be interesting. I mean, I, I, you know, we'll learn more about, um, we'll learn more about IPEF, I, you know, in the, in the weeks ahead. You know, what we have seen thus far is um, it appears likely to, you know, maybe be something that more mirrors the, the recent TTC statement with uh, the European Union um, than it does an actual free trade agreement. So if that is if that trajectory sort of remains on its course and there are no changes to US law required by whatever the IPATH turns into, then I don't know that there's a whole lot that Congress can do. I will say that in a similar situation where there was a sort of executive branch agreements uh, and this one in particular was the U.S.-Japan agreement that Ambassador Lighthizer uh, concluded, uh, which, uh, you know, similar to the sort of trajectory, at least the projection of where we think IPAF is going to land, did not require any changes to U.S. law. Ambassador Tai, in her uh, previous role, uh, was not very happy about uh, these agreements being struck without congressional uh, input. Um, so I can imagine a scenario in which particularly Republicans um, on the Hill are going to want a lot more details than uh, USGR is probably thinking that they're going to need to need to provide. Justin, let me follow that up with a question about market access. I was um, you know, it, it having a discussion with another uh, member's chief of staff who said there hasn't been a lot of developments on the market access side in the last 10 years. Do you think as part of yep. this agreement, they will come along and try and open some of that up? What are your thoughts on that area? Again, I think that goes back to my previous points, which was, I think we're gonna to need to see a, 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 a pretty hard pivot uh, if that's gonna be the case. Now, I don't rule out the possibility that IPEF with, you know, perhaps sort of less ambitious, you know, beginning uh, could turn into something that would include market access down the road. That is, you know, one of the reasons why market access is not included in this is that there are folks in the administration and and, uh, you know, major interest groups like labor unions and others that, 
you know, do not want to see market access as part of this. And they think they're very concerned about a TPP by another name. Uh, so there's a lot of internal, you know, opposition and, and external pressure on uh, on the White House uh, on this on this process, on the administration on this on this process, which is, I think, one of the reasons why we're not going to see any sort of meaningful market access commitments, you know, at least in, in the beginning of this process. Now, you know, there was there were other, you know, the people forget that the impetus for the TPP was actually a, uh, launched in the Bush administration, which was essentially an agreement that would have essentially been, I think it was Chile, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. It was the, they were negotiating agreement in the U.S. at the time, uh, jumped into that agreement and became the, I guess the P5 was what it was called at that point. Uh, which didn't have, we already had a free trade agreement with Australia, Chile, and Singapore. New Zealand was the sort of odd person out, but it was the sort of philosophical and policy underpinnings of what then became the TPP. So I don't rule out the possibility that, you know, over time, IPEF could turn into a, you know, something that looks a lot more like what TPP looked like. And, you know, certainly the, the same sort of, you know, security and, and foreign policy concerns are, uh, are you know, under uh, underpin IPEF as, as as the TPP. So, um, but I think we would need to see a pretty significant shift in in policy and, uh, from the administration and trade policy for us to get to that point. But and last question on that, and then I'll turn it back over to Daniel. Do you think that will occur with these upcoming midterm elections if the House and Senate were to shift? Um, do you think that the administration now views that as more uh, viable or do they dig in their heels? I don't think they view it as probably more viable. I, I will uh, remind folks listening that one of the things that caused the, you know, a pretty significant pivot in the Obama administration was uh, when North Korea sunk uh, the Chenowin, which is a South Korean ship, uh, and a foreign policy national security uh, situation flared and thinking in the in the administration shifted away from viewing its you know trade policy as as sort of domestic economic policy and as a tool for foreign policy and that caused a shift which led to you know them getting serious on passing uh, the chorus agreement for example so i i don't rule that out either uh although i think that you know the economic team in place at the time was much more uh, what was less sort of ideological on trade than uh, than perhaps the, the card administration's folks are, but that is also you know always a possibility. I mean, we went through you know I, two and a half years or so with Ambassador Kirk, you know, no sort of movement on the agreements with Korea, for uh, Colombia, and Panama, and then you know uh, in about nine months or ten months or so, um, all three of them got done. So that that's one that is one way that 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 is a possibility uh, out there. Can't plan on it, can't forecast it in any with any in any sort of meaningful way. But uh, that that certainly happened at the end of 2010 and uh, and through uh, 2011. Great, thank you, Justin. To close this out, maybe real quick, if you had to guess, maybe uh, if USTR was to send a response to this letter or maybe make a justification for it, what do you think they would say? How do you think they would defend their current ways they've approached trade so far? I would hope that they would not respond in the way that they commented 
uh, in the press articles uh, surrounding the letter. I would hope they would sound a much more, uh, you know, pr productive and, you know, maybe even take ownership and recommit to rebuilding the, the partnership. But I, I, I don't have a, I don't have any sort of like either high or low degree of confidence that that's what they'll do. I'm just, I, that, that would certainly be, you know, if I got my hand caught in the cookie jar, uh, I wouldn't be <laughs> pretending that I didn't, um, I would be, uh, I would be looking for ways to, to sort of rebuild that trust and, and, and rebuild the partnership that's so necessary for, uh, for trade policy to, to, to function uh, politically in the United States. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, Justin, we really appreciate it. Thanks for being on with us. Thanks for talking with us about this uh, relationship and kind of the history there and sharing all of your really great experience. I really appreciate it and always appreciate the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be with you. Thanks again. Thanks, Justin. Thanks everyone for joining.